Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our very own guests and guest hosts. Or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And finally, you can stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. All right, that's the advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. And coming up very soon, you'll hear me in conversation with Emily Adrian. Emily Adrian is the author of the novels Everything Here is Under Control and The Second Season, as well as two critically acclaimed novels for young adults. Her work has appeared in Granta, Joyland, Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Millions. She's also a co-editor of the new press, Great Place Books. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Emily Adrian. I typically live in New Haven, Connecticut, where my husband is a professor at Yale. But in the summers, he teaches at a very unique college in uh, the Eastern Sierra, the desert of California. It's called Deep Springs College. Um, It's very small. There's like uh, 20-something kids total. Um, It's very competitive. It's very hard to get in. And when uh, they are living out in this incredibly isolated canyon in the desert. They are um, studying in a kind of great books program. They are working um, on a fully operational cattle ranch and they um, practice self-governance. So it's this very, uh, very cool, very strange, tiny program um, where we have spent a lot of time as a family and we just finished up a semester there um, and then headed north to the Portland, Oregon area to spend time with my family. So that's where I'm in now I'm just like got to my parents' house um, where I'll be for about a month. So what was a day like there and what's a day like here? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a day there um, is incredible. It's like the, it's it's one of my favorite things that we have sort of done with our lives is be part of this uh, project and be part of this community. Um, so typically we would wake up, um, we have our six-year-old son with us, uh, we have our elderly dog with us, so there's the sort of, just the sort of like regular morning routine that doesn't change no matter where you haul your family. Um, and then when we're when we're at Deep Springs, my husband usually teaches in the morning, um, and I take care of our kid, which out there just means hiking, swimming, um, following him around the ranch while he greets every single animal by name, um, and then... <laughs> Everybody eats lunch together, like students, faculty, families all eat lunch together. And then typically my husband and I would then switch and he would take over the child care and I would um, go hole up somewhere and, and write or work on the press for a few hours. Um, 
and that's really like it it's it's chaotic in a way but it feels like a, just a really like lovely relaxed routine um and now that we're at my parents' house, there really is no routine. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's more, I guess it's like vacation, but it feels, I mean, you have children, yes? Yes, too. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're familiar with vacation as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, we're, they're technically on it right now. They're home this month yeah. for this. And we had, we lost our childcare and then my wife and I are working from home and taking care of them. And it's very, yeah, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's different. It's different every. It's like the same every day, but it's a little different every day, and it's never yeah. exactly easy. But it's not yeah. the worst thing. Like that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we're right now we're um we're my husband and I still are sort of trading off, trying to make sure we both get time to work, um, and then both you know do our share of childcare and spending time with my parents and our extended family out here. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, we kind of play every day by ear. There's no firm schedule. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's fun and it's, it's very, uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel like whenever I remember like how great the, the summer has been so far, I feel like I can kind of handle anything from here. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where's next? Where do you go? After we go, we go home technically uh-huh. next, which is New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, my son will start first grade. He oh, did yeah. really, he did really wonderfully in kindergarten last year. So we're excited for him to get back and, you know, learn, learn more. He's doing great at reading and math and all of that. Yeah. It's really exciting. My oldest is six, also going yeah. into first grade. So they're, I guess the same age. So kindergarten was an interesting year. I mean, it's like so much happens that year in yeah. kindergarten. It's like, I don't know if it was like this for your son, but it felt like everything they're going to deal with really intensely into like 12th grade, it all totally. starts happening in these yeah. little ways incrementally throughout the year. And it's like, yeah. there's a, a, lot of, a lot of social development and they're starting to become aware of adult things. Totally. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah but exciting. It starts, yeah. It's so fun. It starts to feel like they're really not babies anymore. Like the the toddler is, is gone and you just mm-hmm. have this kid, um, which I don't know if I've, I've found that like really exciting and kind of a relief. You still have a younger kid as well. Yeah. He's four. Cool. So, and he's very four. He's starting to <laughs> get a little bit of his behavior in check, but it's still, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting just to, to see it too. It's like, Oh my, just two years ago, this one was like this one. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. I know. It seems like. But, um, well, I guess we're in the same book because we have <laughs> at least one young child and we're editing a press. And so yes. I'd love for you to talk about um, Great Place Books um, and the collaboration uh, that you're doing uh, with the other editors and, and founders there. Yeah. So would you talk a bit about Great Place and how it all started? Yeah. So um, it, there are three co-founders. It's me. It's uh, Alex Higley. And together we are the editorial team. We handle all of acquisitions and are really um, kind of the face of of the press. And then our third co-founder is Monica Woods, um, who is a literary agent. She's the founder of Triangle House. Um, very good at what she does, very knowledgeable, um, and is sort of the person we turn to for advice of all kinds. Um, mm-hmm. She, I think, uh, oddly, she seems to be the agent of so many people I've interviewed and a lot of my favorite writers. And yeah, yeah I, re- I admire um, Triangle House and, and what yeah. she does there and the, the magazine they have. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's great. She's great. And we are really lucky to have her on our team. Um, it's a real, yeah, we, we all have slightly different backgrounds and slightly different interests. And it just really helps to be working with somebody who's been in publishing for so long and has seen it from the perspective of being a writer herself and from being an agent and from representing so many great authors who are working right now. Um, yeah, I th- and I think it, it definitely helped uh, people take us seriously as a press right off the bat to just have her on the team. So how did it all um, happen? Like who sent the text or the email (laughs) or whatever that was like, I want to start a press or was it like that or was it very gradual and just kind of happened? I, um, I think it, I think it did start over text. Um, It started with Monica and Alex actually. And then um, Alex and I are sort of best writer friends. We are sort of each other's first readers and have been swapping manuscripts for a long time. Um, and so he asked me if I, if I would do it with them and I was really excited about it. Um, yeah. And then we, you know, it's kind of, it was one of those things that was, I think happening really gradually, like a lot of ideas were being bounced around. Um, and like with all such projects, as you know, eventually you just have to go for it and start doing something you have no idea how to do. <laughs> Yeah, I could definitely relate to that. And so when you were in the stages of planning it and you were kind of figuring out what the press was going to be uh, and and how it was going to be run, um, what were some of the like core ideas kind of behind it in terms of like the kinds of books you might want to publish um, or the frequency or the, or, um, the amount of time yeah. <laughs> you'd want to put into it and just kind of like what the hopes and dreams were. Yeah. I mean, we're starting small. We're only putting out um, a few books a year and that's mostly just so that we can really give our full attention to each author. Um, And so that each, each book is a really deliberate choice, something we were just incredibly excited about and had to have, because as you can imagine, we all work already. Um, We don't have infinite time. We don't have an infinite budget. Um, So we're, starting small, starting boutique, trying to just make sure that everything we put out has, you know, everything that we can give it. Um, and I think the sort of the the ethos of the press grew out of this observation that all three of us had made, that so many books um, that were unique and, and fresh and had real... Um, literary value, but were maybe not easily comped to commercial bestsellers were either not getting picked up by presses at all, or were getting picked up and then pushed in a more commercial direction. And this was happening with our own work and it was happening with um, the work of our friends. And uh, of course, you're always like happy when you sell a book or when a friend sells a book and gets that book deal that they worked so hard for. But I think a lot of us had a sort of different book in mind when we started writing, or we had a version of that uh, manuscript in a drawer that isn't totally um, in line with with the book that ended up selling, right? And mm. I have definitely um, made changes to my own work that I made in the interest of the book being commercially viable. I've watched friends do the same thing. And we were hoping, I think, to sort of take some of those drafts out of the drawer and to certainly to work on them and to offer editorial insights um, to make them into the best possible versions of themselves, but to really let writers um, 
build on and, and stay true to their original vision and to not think of every book in terms of sheer numbers. Yeah. And when I started Autofocus, I didn't mean to do as many books as we've been doing, but it's just like, you know, you take one book and you love it and you publish it and you you get access to all these other manuscripts. And I'm like, I love, I love this one as much as this other one I publish. Like, how am I not going to yeah. publish it? <laughs> so then I end up taking on more than I should, but it just speaks to um, what you're saying, like the level of work that is out there that has been getting close, but not yeah. taken by, you know, big publishers or even the, the bigger smalls. Uh, I, I've been shocked yeah. to see, and I've even turned down books that I like and like, I, I you know, even taking on more than, <laughs> than I probably should, I'm still turning down books uh, that I like. And I'm like, is, I don't know if there's going to be someone who takes this. Yeah. We, I mean, we've had, we've had the same experience and it, it, it is shocking. I mean, I, I think I thought when we started a small press that we would be working with, maybe a lot of writers who didn't have agents um, or writers who had no publication history at all. And that's really not the case. I mean, our, our inboxes, I think, probably resemble the inboxes of people who are very high up at big five presses. We have agents whose name we recognize. We have writers who have published in all of the top places and their work isn't finding um, a home at those, at those bigger presses anymore. And it, it sometimes it's hard because I know that the book um, deserves so much more than we can give it just financially. Like I, I want, I, I'm, you know, we're making offers on books that I think deserve the biggest book deals and they're not getting those offers. Um, they're getting our offer instead, but it's also, so then, you know, the, the flip side of that is that when we do take on a book, we just really commit ourselves to it. Um, and, and try to give them what they would not have gotten necessarily with the press that had the money. Mm hmm. And the first book is a poetry book, Block's World, by Emma Catherine Perry. I'm actually inter interviewing her, like, I guess in a oh, few days. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and and I, loved, I loved her book. Um, uh, and so what else is coming down the pipeline? I know you're a novelist. Alex is a novelist. So is it, do you think it'll mostly be novels, or are you really just kind of not really thinking of genres? It just kind of depends on what you get and what you think you can do with it. I think we want to you know, we keep in mind that we're only putting out a few titles a year. And I think a t in a typical year, I would imagine uh, two are novels and maybe one is poetry or memoir or nonfiction. Um, right now we have, uh, so we have Blocks World by Emma Catherine Perry coming out in the fall. And then in 2024, we have two novels. One is Cascade by Julia Hannafin, um, which is a novel about shark researchers off the coast of San Francisco. And it's also just about um, gender and grief and addiction and whether people can sort of escape the things that they have inherited biologically, or whether they have to sort of keep that predetermined map of their lives in mind. Um, and then the following novel is a uh, novel in translation. Um, it's coming from a Spanish author named Pilar Frail. Um, and we, we are, we got a grant from the, the Spanish, uh, arts council to publish that one, um, which is really exciting. Cool. And so books, yes. And, but you're doing classes with great place, That's right? right? Yeah. yeah. Would you talk a little bit about those and if any listeners wanted to check those out, how they can do it? Yeah. Um, so we all, all three co-founders had teaching experience. Um, I have, led workshops on my own. And then I was doing a lot of teaching through Catapult, which 
closed its educational arm um, early this year. And even before that happened, we we had the the idea of building classes into Great Places model um, pretty early on in our planning stages. Um, and one really simple way it supports the press is just financially. Um, when we were teaching for other venues, a, a large amount of the money that our classes were generating were going toward, um, in my case, catapults or to whatever small press was running the class. Um, which is great. But now that we have our own press, yeah. <laughs> we're really thrilled to be able to uh, support not only our own individual careers, but the the project as a whole with running those classes. Um, and then the other thing I love about the classes is that it just builds community around the press itself. Um, everybody who signs up for a class gets to know one another as writers and as thinkers. And then they also become aware of the books that we have coming out. Um, and it just it just sort of creates this this network of readers and writers that I have found really satisfying, um, and it's it's a lot of fun. Like I I love teaching, and I love now having the control to sort of teach what I want when I want. Um, and I have a, a, a sort of core group of students who sign up for my classes over and over again, which is mm-hmm. which is uh, inspires confidence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and what's the class you're currently teaching or just about to teach? My next class uh, comes up in September, and it's called Reading Monroe, and it's sort of a combination of a, a seminar that you might take in college and a creative writing class. So we'll be reading um, four of her stories, four of my favorite Alice Monroe stories, and we'll be sort of looking at how she um, makes them work, what her techniques are, what her particular you know, craftsmanship is like, and we'll look at the role of inspiration in a writer's life. So how do we read something by somebody we admire um, and not rip it off, but how how we take that feeling of excitement and uh, inspiration and apply that to our own work. So students will be reading and we'll be discussing these stories as a group, but then they'll also be sort of taking some of the techniques we tease out of her work and applying them uh, to their own work in progress and getting feedback from me. story writer, editor, publisher, teacher. So take me back <laughs> to how all this came to be, like your early life as a, as a reader and writer, or just as a kid in general, if maybe the reading and writing came later. Um, I think you grew up on the West Coast, right? Yeah. It's where you are now, So and yeah. you live on the East Coast. Yeah, talk yeah. about life as a kid on the West Coast and reading and writing. And the second season, which we'll talk about, is about basketball. So I was wondering yeah. if their athletics played a role as well. Right. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, I was not an athletic kid. I was a reader. Um, and I, I was, a, I, something I've noticed as an adult is that I was a reader and a writer in a way that felt really disconnected from ambition. Like a, a lot of people I know now talk about, um, their their sort of early lives as as readers and writers and as students and how much it was already funneled into an idea of having a career or even just of going to a certain college um and i don't think i had that i think it all felt 
like what I was just doing because it was my default mode of interacting with the world. Um, and I definitely, it, it definitely crossed my mind that people were out there writing for a living, but I think it, it crossed my mind the way that like a lot of, um, young people think like, well, obviously my dream job is to play in the NBA, right? (laughs) I never thought that like it would really happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just didn't uh, ever stop. And then I went to, uh, I actually, I actually uh, dropped out of high school Mm -hmm. um, and ended up starting college at Portland State University, which is just a very big, uh, state school in downtown Portland. Um, and I started going there when I was 16. Mm -hmm. Um, So so take me through that. So what was the situation (laughs) that led you to quit high school, but to start college early? Was, did you quit high school to start college early or did you kind of quit high school and end up going to college? No, I, well, I, that's a good question. And I, I mean, (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think with all of like the, the decisions that most like profoundly affect our lives. It can be very hard to say why, yeah, even as right, we're asked right. over and over again, like, why, like, why did you mm-hmm. have kids? It's like, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's the uh, time answers what happened after you made those choices, but yes. it's very hard to go back and say why. Totally. Um, I think as a kid, I, I was not a particularly great student. Um, and my family did not have a ton of money when I was growing up. And eventually, as I as I got further into high school, I just realized that what was waiting for me after high school was um, probably going to, you know, a big local state university and, and getting a job and moving out of my parents' house and just sort of making a life for myself. And I was increasingly um, unhappy in high school, uh, my family was having kind of a fraught time in general. And I I just thought maybe I could um, press fast forward on the whole thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and get, get to where I was going faster. Um, So I did, but it was in college that I started really thinking more seriously about like, okay, what would happen if I wrote a book? What would happen if I tried to get a literary agent? Um, And it wasn't, it wasn't because I was getting that kind of attention in school. It wasn't, nobody was encouraging me to do this, um, but it started to to seem like something that I should try. Uh, so I did shortly after college write a novel um, and, and and try to get an agent. Yeah, and what happened? Did you? Was, yes. Did that, that end up being the first novel in the first eight? And it, it was the first, it was the first and current agent. I've been with my agent since I was uh, 21. Awesome. But it was not the first novel, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I failed to sell two before we sold the first. Yeah, okay, but but you got the agent on that the first, first yeah, one. yeah, interesting. And then yeah. so eventually, that's so that's led to four. <laughs> yeah. So the first one, so I read, as I mentioned, I read second season, the the most recent one. The first one is labeled as YA. Yeah, the, the first two. The first two. Okay, I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't, the one I know is about an like an eight, like seventeen, eighteen year old going to college but yeah. it wasn't like marked YA like the other one but seemed right. to be and then the the next two are about um mothers yeah so first um would you talk about I guess 
the concerns of the first two books with the younger main characters when you were writing i guess even the books that didn't end up getting published were you writing about similar things that you ended up writing about in those two you you did end up selling yeah i mean i think um i was writing ya as a young person because i was a young person um <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, the fact that it was labeled YA is was basically just where the market was at the time. Yeah. YA was having like a huge moment. Mm -hmm. um, John Green was everybody's favorite author. Um, and, the, you know, there were many, many other people writing in, in the same style that were just getting a lot of attention in the world of YA. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, I wrote that first book when I was 21 and I felt like my adolescence was the phase of life on which I had the most perspective on which I could actually try to say something. And as we sort of briefly got into my own adolescence was um, a little bit unexpected, a little bit uh, atypical. So I just was sort of interested in, in exploring those years and trying to, f you know, figure out what I wanted to say about what it means to go from being a kid to being an adult. Um, and I, I stopped writing YA and stopped writing books that could be considered YA um, when I got older and wasn't wasn't as concerned about those things anymore. Um, and then obviously my work uh, sort of turned toward a, a lot of the concerns of, of parenthood and mm -hmm. and the responsibility of, of being an adult. Yeah. And I want to ask about in the first two books, when you're writing about being a young person in what ways did you draw from your life in your fiction compared to the ways you you might or might not draw from your life in your fiction today do you feel like you do that or process that in the same way or do you feel like when you were younger you were doing it more or less than you're doing it now if that makes sense yeah that's a good question um I think the thing about about being very young is that you don't always have a sense of how much of your your life is shaped by where you grew up, who raised you, who you spent time with, um, how much of your your insights are sort of were sort of taught to you or rehearsed by you, um, mm. and I don't I don't think that like my work has become more or less autobiographical as I've gotten older, but I do think I just have a much uh, broader perspective about what is me and what is not me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the work now, would you say that, I mean, obviously it did in, in the subject or, or the character um, that motherhood would change your writing or your writing process, but did you find it also uh, uh, changed maybe how you approach the page or like what you're trying to do with your work? Do you feel that's roughly stayed the same or do you think that becoming a mother like not only changed the characters, but changed how you approach the novel form? It, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely changed how I think about writing as a practice. Um, which I'm, I think any parent can relate to. You you have to, as 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 a as a parent who does not have endless uh, access to childcare or to their own time, <laughs> um, 
you have to, you have to really want to write, you know, especially if it's not your primary source of income, especially if you can't justify it as like, this is how I'm putting food on the table, right? You have to, you have to want to write the way that people want to watch a TV show or they want to eat an entire thing of Oreos. Like you have to, (laughs) you have to make it your Oreos or you're never going to do it. Um, and so in that sense, it has, it has changed my approach to writing. Um, I don't think, I don't think it has changed necessarily what I want to do with my work or how Mm -hmm. I want people to read my work. I do think that parenthood has given me, um, a much greater understanding of just how different and idiosyncratic everybody's lives are. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. I, and I related to that when you were talking about how, like when you're a kid, like you just, you just can't see how, like, you know, people are always like, Oh, the choices you make and the people you're around, like it all shapes you and you're like, yeah, whatever. And then like, you, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, you get to, um, you know, middle age and it's like, wow. <laughs> I can't even fathom what other people's lives are really yeah. like. Like I am like just so glued to all these little things and details and people. Like yeah. I, I knew I knew nothing. I mean I still know yeah. nothing. Except that now I'm just like, wow, there are a lot of people in the world just extremely different than I can even fathom. Totally. Like I only know I know so little. Yeah. And I mean <laughs> another way of putting it might be that there is a sort of natural narcissism to being young where you and it's it's sort of a, a main character syndrome where you just believe that your experience is inherently interesting and relatable and normal, right? Like you think yeah. you think that you're you're you know, a guy. It turns out you are a very, very specific guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about the second season. So this is the most recently published novel. It's about a character named Ruth. She's a former basketball player. She's current NBA reporter. The book to me is about middle age, but (laughs) within that, like divorce, uh, motherhood, love and relationships at 42, Mm -hmm. (laughs) her age in the book. Um, To me, it's also about career and work and like the worlds we live in when we do the things we love but like are not able to always get what we want (laughs) within that um in that way a bit about competition and um public self-perception versus like your own self-perception so i wonder if you would talk a little bit about ruth like where did she come from for you um like what was going on uh for you when you wrote the book and we're starting to get her on the page and just the overall journey to putting her through this whole book and then coming out of it <laughs> with uh, a book you could publish. Yeah. Um, so, I'll, I mean, I'll start by saying that this book came out two years ago, which means I started writing it in, I think, 2018, which yeah. feels like a million <laughs> years ago. Um, and so I have a sort of, uh, not indifference to this book, but sort of the relief of um, of of not needing to care about <laughs> To, so yeah. to care about the book anymore or no or or just the feeling that the there are, the stakes are no longer high like this book has sort mm-hmm. of has sort of lived its life and it was a joy to write and the experience that the experience of publishing it was also wonderful and now i uh, never think about it <laughs> 
but <laughs> but um well now i'm forcing you to. <laughs> yeah exactly all of this to say that these are not there was a time two years ago when i had all of my answers like super polished and ready to go oh, yeah. um when when i was doing press for this book and now i have none of that um what i will say about this book is that it was uh the the first book I had written after my son was born when my life was no longer entirely about taking care of a baby. Mm. Um, and it was also a book that I wrote um, very consciously trying to sort of finally steer my work entirely away from the YA category. Um, one thing that was really fun to write about Ruth is that she had a teenage daughter. She has a teenage daughter. I guess the world of the book is present tense. Um, (laughs) And so I had written middle-aged parents before, but always from the perspective of the, the teenage protagonist. And now I was writing sort of that same role from the perspective of the mom. And I was doing so as a mom, but as a, as a young mom with a young child, Um, So it was very fun to think about how, you know, her concerns as a mother were or were not the same as what mine were at that point in my son's life. Um, It was very, it was fun to write about or to imagine that phase of life when your kid is still your baby, but is also an adult that you can't um, really, really control or influence very much at all. Exciting and terrifying. Mostly terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, I, I... are you an NBA fan at all? Uh, yeah, I like a casual plus. Okay, so <laughs> not like super into the NBA, but yeah. I do enjoy it. Yeah. Do you know who Doris Burke is? I don't. Okay, so the Ruth is very, um, very obviously modeled after a real life uh, ESPN analyst named Doris Burke, um, mm-hmm. who is the. Um, first woman to uh, call NBA games full-time on national TV in real life. This is true of her. In the book, the character is trying to get to that stage of of her career and of, you know, basketball history. Um, and the way that she must do it is by uh, get, getting the job of her ex-husband who is exiting that role at, or who is exiting, exiting the job at a network like ESPN um, – and if, if she gets that job, she will become the, the first woman to have that role. Um, a lot of the book is uh, like a, a tangle of references to actual people in basketball media, to actual people in the NBA. Um, and so one thing that I was doing constantly while writing the character of Ruth was looking at this real person who was a source of fascination for me. Um hmm. And who did ultimately find out about the book and request a copy. So that was terrifying. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's interesting to me that you would come up with this character. Was it all just the fascination with this person? Because you mentioned you didn't have a background in athletics. Right. So how did you, I mean, it must have all been research, right? I mean, you must have talked to people. I don't know. What did you, what kind of research did you do? I talked to people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, I don't have... I did not grow up with an athletic background. I am something of a late in life athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm a runner. Um, And so a lot of like Ruth's uh, neuroses and and obsession with, with, you know, her physicality and with 
exercise are are based on real feelings I have. Um, but I had always grown up watching basketball. I had a brother who was an NBA fanatic, um, and uh, my you know my my boyfriend in, in college who I ultimately married is also an NBA fanatic. Um, and I I would always watch basketball. It was the sport I liked best. Um, but I was never a fan. Like I was like I was never a true fan. Like I didn't have I would I would watch like a playoffs game with my brother or my husband and I would be interested in it. I'd be like, this is exciting. But I did not actually have that emotional investment where it was going to ruin my day or make my day if <laughs> yeah. like the team I wanted to win yeah. won. I, I don't um, really have and, that. <laughs> yeah. But watch watching uh my my husband who is such a like he's he's in ninety percent of his life like a very um he's very emotionally stable. <laughs> like he's very, very calm, very poised, um, very, very like self-possessed guy. And so watching him watch like an NBA championship game and get that, you know, get that like glazed look in his eye and start like screaming at the TV or something was something I had to get to the bottom of. Like yeah. I know him so well, we are so alike in so many ways. He's my best friend in the world. And I was like, what is this? Like, I don't know this part of you. The animal um, that somehow activates the animal. Yeah. yeah, you have that great line in the beginning, toward the beginning of the book where you're like, the thing about basketball and motherhood is they both require, there's like prime animal instinct or something. And so it's interesting yeah. to hear <laughs> about watching it, right? That, it, that that somehow is able to access that. Yeah. And so then, and, you know, watching watching basketball games over his shoulder, I also just became kind of fascinated by what what we're even doing when we're watching sports. Like, in what ways is it exactly the same as watching any narrative on TV or in a movie? In what ways is it different because it's real? And to that extent, is it real? Like, who is actually <laughs> controlling what we're watching on TV? What's motivating everybody in all these different roles that it requires to get the game, you know, onto your TV on a like seven second delay or whatever? Like how I just I just needed to know, like how this was all coming together and how it worked. Um, and I think the fact that I had not grown up as like a rabid basketball fan was kind of an asset when writing the book because I there was so much to question that I might never have questioned if it was just a very natural part of my life. Um, and and then the, the the final thing that that made this fascination into something I wanted to write a book about was noticing this woman, Doris Burke, who is um, – she was at the time uh, a sideline reporter. So she was the woman who would be like interviewing LeBron James after he won the championship. And she – does not resemble the person you expect to see in that role. She's older. Um, she has big glasses. She looks like somebody's mom, which she is. And and yet you can see that she is the reporter that uh, players were had the most respect for and, and with whom they were most comfortable. And I just wanted to know, like, how she got that job. Like, I wanted to know, like, how she became that person to, to LeBron James. Mm. Um so all of these things came together and I was like, I'm going to write a book about the NBA. And my husband was like, okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I ended up, um, I interviewed a lot of people. I interviewed several uh, sideline reporters for the NBA. Um, I interviewed a producer at ESPN who could explain to me like how, you know, games get televised, how we are able to watch them live. Um I watched just the year that I wrote this book. I I watched an unreal amount of basketball, just like 
an, an unholy amount. And it, it is, I mean, it, I did not do this without becoming a genuine fan. Like right. this became uh, something that, that I really was emotionally invested in. I became the thing that had fascinated me in the first yeah. place. Do you find since finishing the book, you, you have trouble getting back to that level of interest and in, in fandom in the NBA? Cause you're like, like kind of over the book or do you, do you, has it lasted? Like, do you still feel like I still, a fan? Yeah. I still feel like a fan. Um, I still, yeah, I'm still fluent in, in the NBA. <laughs> yeah. Like, but it's not, it's not the same. Right. There's something really wonderful that happens when you're writing a, a research novel and about, about something that you're um, passionate about or that you have a lot of enthusiasm for, where everything that you're doing becomes like part of the work. So mm. all of those hours I spent watching basketball really were related to the novel and really were um, enhancing the experience of writing it and, and ultimately the, the text that came out of it. Like it needed those hours. And now if I'm watching basketball, it has nothing to do with my work. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's different in that way. You mentioned um, point of view very briefly before, like, you know, with the YA, you're writing it first. And your book before the second season was third person as well, right? I think it was first person. Oh, it was? So this was your yeah. first one in, in third? Yeah, that's correct. So the question works either way. So um, yeah, what was what was different for you in composing in third over first? And then since then... Are you gravitating to third or are you like, were you wanting to get back to first? So the the reason the second season is in the third person point of view is that, and, and you touched on this a little bit, um, Ruth, the protagonist, being a public figure, being basically a celebrity is, is hugely relevant to every part of the book. And mm-hmm. so I wanted the perspective to mostly be a very close third person. Um, and I wanted occasionally for it to pull back and show you this character through the eyes of the public. Um, and there was no way to mess with that in the first person. Right. Totally. Uh, so it had to be third person, which was really fun. Um, it also, I think, made the book feel um, as literary as it does, even though the content is very commercial. I mean, it's, it's, it's about professional sports. Um, and I didn't want it to, I, yeah, I didn't want it to feel gimmicky. I didn't want it to feel like overly, um, casual. I wanted it to feel like a literary novel about, about basketball. And I think the third person helped with that too. Um, and the, I am currently working on a novel that is again, the third person and that does some, um, sort of strange meta self-conscious things with perspective so i guess it did give me an appetite for it yeah i guess there's in the second season i mean there's not a ton of it but the texts and the tweets and the interview later i mean those were outlets to (laughs) throw a little first in there i suppose totally yeah one thing um i enjoy about your about the book and maybe the style of the book in general is just i feel that your work had such a great emphasis on clarity i mean that in of language of character of theme it's very easy to read like i always know i feel i'm just always oriented and one thing it made me think about is you know show show and tell because i feel that 
your work does both and does both very effectively in that when and I say tell, really what I'm saying is it gives context <laughs> for situations and characters. And then it kind of seamlessly will go from there into slipping into the scene. Uh, and then you kind of are able to seamlessly like slip back out. And when I was, so a long time ago, I was, <laughs> I was a student fiction writer. I don't write fiction anymore, but I did. Mm-hmm. And I always struggled with you always hear show, don't tell. And I always hated when people said that because it's so fucking vague. And mm-hmm. I, in, in many impulses in my body, I reject <laughs> what it's saying, even though I agree with it. And what I didn't like about it is, the, is, is like, it sounds like they're saying, don't give context. Like, don't give people the grounding. Now, what I, when I say you, you do telling, you're doing telling that also shows. And, and I think what, I've learned about that idea or that rule is what it's really saying is never do just one thing. You should be writing sentences that are doing multiple things at once. So if you're just right. telling somebody something, you're doing one, one thing at once. So I just, I guess I would just love to hear you talk a little bit uh, as a teacher, um, a little bit about like how you see yourself telling and showing, or if you don't even look at it that way. Um, and how you kind of just think about your ability to contextualize in a way that does more than one thing before going into a scene. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've all read books or or stories where the author was sort of transparently obsessed with making sure you understood everything about this character as if you were going to like write their obituary later. Um, And I don't feel that impulse as a writer or I've, I've trained myself not to, but I do think that you need to know why you are telling certain things and why you are not telling other things. So as a writer who is tasked with um, presenting you with a, you know, a chunk of this person's life and not their entire biography you have to ask yourself questions like how much am I saying about their childhood? How much am I revealing about their parents? Um, How much am I going to explain something that happened to them four years ago that is maybe thematically relevant, but not relevant to any of the action that unfolds in this narrative. Um, And I, I think that what you need is just control over what you're telling and what you're not. And you need to know why. You need to know why you're either saying, you know, where this character's parents were born or why that does not matter to your story. And if you're writing in the first person, then it's you have to go even deeper and ask yourself why the narrator wants you to know these things about them or does not care to tell you these things. Um, In the third person, I think the question tends to be more about whether the text itself needs this information. Um, And then I think... The other thing about telling is that it works best when you are, when you get granular, like when you uh, are dealing with specificity, like it, I think really bogs down a narrative when you are telling me like where this person's ancestors are from. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why you're telling me this, Um, but when you, when you're telling me like the color of the teapot that was in the protagonist's grandmother's kitchen in 1983, then I'm like, okay, that, <laughs> that is interesting. Right. Um, and because it, it, it asks a question and forces the reader to say like, why do I like, why is this teapot important? And why mm-hmm. is this 
buried in the character's memory as part of their personal biography, even if it's never going to end up in their obituary. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I know I'm asking questions about an old book, but briefly, though, I'm thinking of the, the structure of the book um, because it takes place like over the NBA finals and then it kind of yeah. goes a little bit past it, um, you know, to resolve it. And one thing, a question I had as I was reading it was the process of finding that structure. I guess like my question is like, did you try to constrict it too much and then open it up to go past the finals or did you have it open too much and then need to like reconstruct it down to like this short period of time? I always knew that I, that I wanted it to be over the finals. Um, and now I'm trying to remember why, why I wanted it to be that way. Um, I think that uh, because, you know, the, the the book is is doing two things. It's like it's a character study of this woman who has a unique job and a, a unique life. And then it's also kind of doing the same thing for the NBA. Like you don't need to know anything about basketball to mm-hmm. read this book and to follow it. There might be a few scenes where you get lost um, in, in basketball lingo for like a paragraph and then you're fine. Um, but I think I wanted the excuse to really hone in on these five, these five games, you know, this brief period of time in this person's life and in the history of the NBA, the fictional history of the NBA as it is in this book. Um, And then, and this kind of relates back to the show versus tell question. Um, I, I wanted to pick how much I tell you about Ruth's life up until Mm -hmm. these five games. And then also how much I tell you about the league before these five mm-hmm. games. And I wanted to feel no pressure to tell you everything. I just wanted to be able to choose when I'm flashing back and letting you in on something that happened earlier. Um, and in fact, when I'm flashing forward and letting you in on something that happens afterward. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted the book to feel uh, invested in this moment of time that is huge for the character and for the players. It, for them, it's a whole phase of their lives and it, the stakes are very high for them. Um, even though the time period is brief. Yeah. I wanted that urgency in the book. And then I also wanted the freedom to go back and forth and, and sort of fill in the space surrounding that period of time. Yeah. It's a great anchor. I, I think about it sometimes when I'm like, I don't know how to structure something. I'm like, just pick a time, <laughs> like pick a period yeah. of time and then see if that helps. <laughs> um, yeah. it's a nice organizing principle when it works out that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, so as we mentioned several times, right, it's not the novel you've been thinking about. You're working on another novel. I know you've had stories come out. Would you talk a little bit about, um, you know, you don't have to go too into detail, a bit about what you're thinking about or who you're writing about in the current novel and um, how stories enter the picture? Are they kind of breaks in your process or are you like yeah. focusing a lot on those right now? The the stories. I tend to write um, either when I'm in between drafts of a novel or when I just need a break from the novel. Um, the process for writing stories is really different. I usually draft them in one day, if not one sitting, mm-hmm. and then spend a little bit of time revising them, getting feedback from people. But I view them, I think, as a very different practice from writing a novel, in part because there are no 
there's really no money at stake when you're writing a short story. I mean, even in the very best case scenario, you're not getting life-changing money for a short story, yeah. right? Um, which is really fun, I think, to not have to even really worry about it. And then I think the um, with short stories, even if it takes a while to place them, uh, it does not take as long as the process of publishing a novel, right? <laughs> so there's a faster turnaround on just the the reward of, of writing a short story. Um, and so, yeah, I think if, I think of short stories as being purely fun. I have no anguish over them. Um, love writing them, love publishing them, love hearing from like the seven people who read each one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the novel I'm currently working on is uh, pretty different from anything I've done before. It, there are no moms in it. Um, <laughs> Actually, there, there's the main character is not a mom. Uh, it's a campus novel. Mm -hmm. It's written from the person. It's actually the book itself takes the form of an MFA student's thesis. Oh, cool. Um, and she's using her thesis to try and sort of uh, dismantle some of the power dynamics in her department at an Ivy League school and to expose some drama and some uh, affairs that may have occurred in the department, including one that she thinks she might have had with her uh, own advisor, but she's not totally sure how to read what happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the sort of the question of the novel is whether this will work, whether she will feel like, like empowered and like she, she claimed something for herself by turning in this thesis to the people she believes done her have done her wrong, or whether she will end up sort of uh, humiliated and disgraced by doing this to herself and by writing by writing herself into this corner yeah so how far along have you you how far along are you with it like have you been working on it has this been what you've been doing since the second season or have there been other starts and stops in there I have been writing it for about a year and I almost have a not a first draft, but like a second or third, like a polished draft. I almost have something I'm ready to send to my agent. In nice. between, I actually, I wrote a memoir um, oh, cool. that did not get published. Oh, yeah? What's yeah. the memoir about? Uh, it was about it was about my mom um, who had like a very sort of tumultuous youth uh, in the American West that involved um, so, sort of painfully clawing her way out of the Mormon church. Um and so it, it was it was written after I spent like a total of 24 hours interviewing her over Zoom when we hadn't seen each other in like a year because mm. of COVID. Um, and the, the book itself was sort of like part uh, interview, part autofiction, part straight ahead memoir. It was it was sort of it was trying to do a lot of things at once. Um, and it, it was sort of about like thinking of how my own life as a mother has been shaped by my mom's life. Hmm. And it didn't get picked up. Sounds great. It did not. <laughs> it sounds not. really good. Um, I hope, I hope that it does. Um, and your stories. So just kind of bringing it back to your classes, you mentioned Alice Monroe. Is there a particular way you feel that Alice Monroe has influenced your own story writing? Or is she just someone you admire but feel is, you know, different than – or that it doesn't feel hugely influenced by you? Yeah, I think um, what I find really inspiring about Monroe and that a lot of writers find inspiring about her work is how she treats time in her stories. She is a short story writer, um, and each of her stories 
feels like it could have been a novel and yet you're so glad it wasn't, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which sounds almost disparaging, but I just mean she pulls off like just the, the weight of a novel, the gut punch of a novel and the force of a novel over the course of like Mm. 5,000 words. She Mm. does it consistently every Mm. time. And she has so much control over those leaps in time that allow for that effect. All right, that was my conversation with Emily Adrian. And that class of Emily's about reading Monroe is coming up in just a few days, depending upon when you're listening to this. That's September 7th, if you're listening to this around the day the podcast comes out. And you can check out that class in addition to all the other great classes they have at Great Place Books. And, of course, the catalog of books they have coming out over at greatplacebooks.com. And, of course, you can check out all of Emily Adrian's books wherever you buy them. And you can read some of her recent short stories at Granta, Joyland, and Epic. And you can check out all our books, too, at autofocuslit.com slash books. It's a great way to support the podcast. And if you feel like it, go review us on whatever app you're using. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.